Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, good to see you. I've never, you know, we've never done this before, so we've never had a an Easter Sunday. It was fun to have our first Easter Sunday last Easter. That we had a about 190 people here in worship, which is amazing for us. Uh, but we've never had a Sunday after Easter. So welcome to the Sunday after Easter. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we are we are reaching the end. Actually, today is the end of a series that we've been doing in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So we're coming to the very end, and if that's good news, then you can breathe a sigh of relief and know we're moving on to something else. Uh, if, you're, if you're sad to see it go, don't worry. We've already said this book is so foundational to what it means to be a Christian and what we understand Christianity to be that we realize we're going to have to come back and do this again probably sooner rather than later. Uh, so we'll be back in Galatians at some point if you stick around here for the next you know, five or ten years, which we hope you will. Uh, but, but today is the last Sunday in this book of, of Galatians, and we're going to wrap things up this morning. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to... Turn there with me, or if you don't and you want to look at the insert that's provided for you in your worship folder or at the screen behind me, we're going to read from Galatians, actually going all the way back to chapter 5 and picking up the last two verses there, and then reading portions of chapter 6 to kind of wrap up what Paul's been saying to us here in this book, or this letter to the Galatians. So read with me together, beginning in verse 25, Galatians 5:25 through 6:10, and then skipping down to verses 16 through 18. Let's read together. Paul writing to the Galatians. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear their own, his own load. One who's taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Last week was Easter, and we said that when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, a whole new world was born. That's really what we believe, that when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, a whole new world was born. And, and the work of God to save us is nothing less than a new creation. He's making all things new. That's what we saw last week on Easter Sunday. He's taking the old order of sin and death, and he's undoing it, and there's a new world coming. Where we will, and the way I said it, it's funny, but it's true, where we will again be naked people running around in a garden talking to God face to face. That's really what we're headed for. That God will dwell with us and we will see him and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and everything will come, everything sad will come untrue. But for the time being, that world's not come yet, it's coming, but it's not here yet. And so for the time being, he has left behind the church in the world, which is passing away as a sign. The church is a sign and a foretaste of what's coming. And so this is our mission as God's people. We are to point the world to a new way of life made available 
through Jesus's death and resurrection in the coming of the spirit and this new life. Now, I want you to hear this, this new life, what the scripture calls eternal life is not something that is only ours, you know, way out in the future after we die and go to heaven. It's it's not just what happens when you die. It's intruding into human history. Even now we live eternal life now. It's a quality of life, not just a duration of life. You can have it now. And in our life together as a body of people, we are our mission is to make the eternal life that Jesus offers us tangible. Our mission is to offer a practical demonstration of the reality of the truth of the gospel. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary in India and then later a missiologist and worked through some of these issues as it related to the, the church in the West, he said, and I quote him, he said, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? How's the gospel credible? How do you come to know that the gospel really is true? And here's what Newbigin says. He says, the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. And so we're a people who live together the, the idea of the new creation of God that is coming. So we read in Isaiah last week that the lion and the lamb lie down with one another. Now, why is that significant? What usually happens when a lion and a lamb get together? The lion eats the lamb. But Isaiah says what God's doing is God's creating a community of people where the lion and the lamb, those who are natural born enemies, the lion won't devour the lamb. The lion and the lamb will lay down one another, lay down with one another in reconciliation and peace. That's that's just one little aspect of of what it's going to be like in this new creation. And what what Paul is going to say to us this morning, what the scripture consistently teaches to us is that we are a people who in our very life together, our mission is to become a practical demonstration of the reality of all that God is doing in Jesus Christ to save us. So in the church, the lion and the lamb lay down together. The young and the old, they don't fight and bicker with one another. You know, left brain people and right brain people, you know, whatever the differences may be, that the church is a people who, despite their differences, figures out how to come together and live peaceably reconciled to one another in Jesus Christ. There's there's a the way of peace. And that's why at the end of all of his talk about the gospel in this letter to the Galatians, Paul concludes the letter with instructions to the church about the practical application of the gospel in the, the church as the community of the gospel. And so all that we've been learning about Paul, what Paul means about the gospel here has huge implications for our lives and for specifically for the way we live with one another. The test, in other words, of your personal understanding of the gospel is this. Do you understand its implications for living in community? You see, being a Christian is what I just said. Being a Christian, by definition, means you have a relationship with God in Jesus that is being fleshed out in your relationship with God's people. And that's what you're going to hear us say over and over and over again, that 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 it's not enough to just come and sit in these nice, cushy, blue seats in this blue room on Sunday mornings, it's not enough. A lot of what Paul's going to talk to us about here, we can't possibly flesh it out in the time, in the hour and 15 minutes or the hour and a half we have to be here together. We need, you know, we meet as a church here on Sunday mornings for worship, but we have intentionally structured ourselves in small groups that meet in homes during the week. We call those things community groups because we see, we see that as the pattern that the New Testament church left us and we understand that it's the only way that's the only way to get done what Paul is calling us to here. 
And so I want to encourage you just to be thinking the strategy that this church has for accomplishing what we're going to talk about this morning is to join with a group of people in proximity to you or in your social networks and to begin to share your life with those people and to invest in one another. And it's what we dream and what we hope for for every single person in this room. We really are trying to get this done. That's just what I want to say, but in a very specific context. And so keep that in mind this morning as we work our way through this passage. And we're going to see three things about what I call the gospel community this morning. We're going to see first what kind of community Paul envisions. In other words, let's ask this question. What kind of community does Paul envision the church being? Number two, what are the obstacles to that community? And number three, how does the gospel heal us so we can be that community? And so, again, pretty standard for us. Our outline, what is it that Paul envisions the church being? What kind of community? What are the obstacles to that community? And how does the gospel alone come and heal us in order to be that community? And so let's look at those three things. And they're the three points in your outline that I provided for you in your worship folder. We'll work through them together. Starting here, what kind of community does Paul envision the church being? Now, Paul sets the expectations uh, very, very quickly at the very beginning and then at the end. But if you'll go down to verse 10, you'll see. That in verse 10, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. And then as we have every as you have opportunity, he says in verse 10, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so Paul sets the expectations for what we understand the church to be. He calls us a family. Paul addresses the Galatians. Galatians, if you look at verse one, he calls them brothers. And so he says, if you want to understand what I what I really believe the church should be, he says, The church should be a family. We're a family. Brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers, that we that that Paul really envisions us being a household. And it's interesting to me, you know, nobody questions the commitment and the allegiance they have to their mom and dad or their brothers and sisters. But for some reason, we don't we don't even come close to feeling the same allegiance and the same commitment to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't know if you've ever, I, I'm, I'm the product of, the, of a divorce. If you've ever lived through a divorce, you know, you know the trauma. You know the absolute horror of those familial relationships, that household relationship being broken when one parent goes to live somewhere else and the whole family split apart and the pain and the anguish and the sadness and the years and years and years of trauma that come from that experience because of what the family's supposed to be. And Paul's saying that we we have the capacity for the same trauma in one another's lives. That we are family. We're a household. Now he uses another word in verse six. If you look in verse six, he says, to those who teach the word or those who are taught the word, they must share that word there, share all good things with the one who teaches. And that word there is the word quanania. And this is probably a word you're familiar with. In other words, it's quanania. That's the Greek. If there's an intertwining of our lives to, to such a degree that, that we don't remain unaffected by each other's needs and concerns. And by describing the church this way, Paul's calling us to an attentive, attentiveness to one another, to a preference for one another, to an aggressive pursuit of one another, that our lives no longer exist apart from one another. Jonathan said it this way. We're members of one another. There's a quanania Our lives, we've become so attached to one another that there's an intertwining of our lives and we can no longer separate ourselves from one another. There's that much intimacy, that much fellowship, that much sharing, so much so that in the book of Acts, 
the Luke, who wrote Acts, reports of the church that nobody even considered their possessions their own. But they understood that whatever they had, it wasn't just theirs to decide to do whatever they wanted to with, but that the other people in the church had claim even on their possessions. This is what we believe, that as the church, we have claim on one another's time. We have claim on one another's talents. We have claim even on one another's possessions, that we are called to be a community of people that shares. And Paul's calling us to this. That's what the church is. He's giving us this beautiful, I just want to park and think about this beautiful vision of what Paul's saying the church should be. It's a church, the church is a household. It's a quantania, it's a fellowship. But then he goes on and he begins to describe not only what the church is, but what the church does. And so just let's just look at, I mean, there's so much here we can't possibly get through it all. Uh, but we're going to try to just pick up a few things. He says this, this quantania, this, this fellowship, this household, this community of the gospel is first a community that, that cares for one another. In verse 2, Paul says it very plainly. He says, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's heavy loads. Come alongside of one another and help one another carry these heavy, hard, burdensome things that are a part of one another's life. Now, I'm always struck. I thought about some different places in the, the Scripture where, where the, the writers of the Scripture bear this out. And I'm always struck by the writer of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, when he's writing to the church in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, since you are also in the body. And it blows my mind every time we come in community Bible reading, we come around to Hebrews and I read that in Hebrews chapter 13. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. He's saying some of you are in prison. Those of you who are not in prison can't act as if you're unaffected by the fact that some in your household, some in your fellowship are, are suffering and being mistreated in prison. no. Count yourself as in prison with them. Enter into their experience. You're not you don't live unaffected by one another. And that's what he's saying. He's saying we're, we're not living different lives. We're so closely identified with one another, so intimately related to one another that if you're in prison, then I'm there, too. If you're in debt, then I'm in debt, too. If you're hungry, then I'm going hungry, too. If you're hurting, then I'm hurting, too. I'm going to share in your pain. It, it affects me. I'm going to help you bear the burden of of the things that are hard and painful in your life. There's a story in the Scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3, the 12 tribes of Israel are coming into the Promised Land, and Gad and Reuben on the, the east side of the Jordan River, Gad and Reuben, they defeat their enemies. And Moses says to these two tribes, Gad and Reuben, he says, you've come into your inheritance, and they settle in there. They start building homes. Their wives and their children settle in. And yet there's 10 other tribes that have yet to cross over the Jordan River and to go and to defeat the enemies and settle into their inheritance. And God says the most amazing thing. He says to these two tribes, these men who have already built their homes, who've already settled their wives and their children into their life, they've already come into their inheritance, they've got rest from their enemies. Moses comes and he says, no, no you've got to understand something. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, you've got work to do. And he looks at these two tribes, the men in these tribes, and he says, you're going to go with them. And not only that, you're going to cross over first in front of them and you're going to fight with them against their enemies until they have rest. And once they have rest, then you can come back and you can enjoy the rest that I've given you. But as long as the rest of your household doesn't have rest, you can't act like you're unaffected by what's going on with them. Do you see what he's calling? He's saying we're a community who cares for one another. And so to be this, we've got to have a broken, we've got to have a willingness to have a broken heart by the needs of others to burden ourselves. He, Paul's saying, bear one another's burdens. He's saying, 
Be willing to make things harder for yourself in order to relieve someone else. We have to be willing to sacrifice and suffer for one another, to put aside our agenda for one another, to to make things more difficult so that somebody else can find it to be easier. To take all of our resources, our time and our energy, and to come up under the weight that other people are carrying and to help them carry that weight. So the church is a caring community. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says. But there's one more thing that I have to get to to just show you what he's calling us to as the church. The church is not just a caring community. It's also a confrontational community. And part of caring for one another is teaching and instructing and correcting one another. And in verse 6, in verse 6 of Galatians 6, Paul uses this Greek word that is significant. And when he says one who is taught... The word, the Greek word there is the word catechumenate. And in the second and third centuries, when people would come into the church, they would become catechumenates. They would become those who were being instructed. They would enter into a period, a long period. It doesn't, it doesn't work this way in the church anymore. You can't grow a church doing this. But, but if people wanted to come and be a part of the church, they would make them go through a two, sometimes two to three year period of training and discipleship where they were taught the doctrines of the, and practices of Christianity and were, and were, you know, kind of watched over to make sure those things were taking root in their lives. And so what Paul's saying, Paul's saying, you have to keep an eye out for one another. We've got to preach the gospel to one another. We've got to be, we've got to be loving one another and bringing one another to right thinking and right practice. And in order to do that, you have to be willing to be confrontational. You have to be bold enough to be willing to say hard things, but soft enough to do it with gentleness and always with self-suspicion. Look at what he says here. In verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too become tempted. So there's a willingness to say hard things, to, to confront and to bring someone back to restoration, to restore them, to put their, it's, it's a word that means to, to take broken bones and to put them back together and to reset them. And it's always painful and it's hard to confront, but but even more so to do it with gentleness and self-suspicion and never from a position of superiority. I mean, that's a unique kind of person. And Paul's saying, when you see a friend who's been overtaken by sin, then you go to them in truth, in love, with gentleness, feeling your own frailty and sin, and you confront them. But you do it because you love them and you're brokenhearted. Not because you're trying to prop up your own righteousness. You see, Paul's describing what he calls a quote-unquote spiritual person who's been radically humbled, doesn't see themselves as holy one, who is confronting the person who's not so holy. It's not, you know, the, the right, the person who's in the right confronting the one who's in the wrong. The church is a community of sinners. It's the sinners confronting sinners, the weak confronting the weak, the nobodies confronting nobodies. And the Spirit creates the humility with which we have to go about this. But to do it well, you have to be both humble and confident at the same time. And Paul says... But that is what the Spirit is doing in us. He says the church is a community of confrontation and care. It's a people, a household, a fellowship who are for one another to their own hurt and willing to sacrifice and suffer and willing to serve one another and care for one another and confront one another and fight for the truth of the gospel in one another's lives. And I would just ask you, don't you want to be a part of a people like that? I hope I've done it justice. I mean, don't you want to be a part of a people who are invested in one another's lives like that? And so if that resonates with you, then not only does Paul, we have to see here, not only does Paul give us the vision of what the true gospel community would look like, but he diagnoses the obstacle as well. 
I mean, if we desire to be that in one another's lives, then we have to be wise to know uh, what, the, what the major obstacle is in getting this thing done. And if you'll go back all the way back with me to the beginning of this passage in Galatians 5, verse 26, Paul diagnoses the obstacle and Paul says, he says here, if you read it there, let us not become conceited. I mean, there it is. Now, this word, I'm lit up about this word. This word is such a great word. It's a word, it, it's a word, it's kino doxoi. And in the King James Version, if you have it, the King James gets it right. The King James translates it vainglory. It's a very good translation. It literally, this word comes from two words. The word kino, which means to empty. It means to, 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 to empty oneself. And doxa or doxoi, which is a word that is, you know, a doxology, is a glory. And so literally the word means empty of glory or a glory vacuum. It means, and here's what it means. It means that deep inside of us, we have a problem. We know we don't matter. I mean, the word glory means importance. It literally means weight. And when something doesn't matter, it means it's not important. It's not weighty. And the word here, this kinodoxoi, it means that deep down inside, we know we're nobody. That we don't have honor and glory and worth. And we're desperately trying to prove to everybody around us that we're somebody. And so that's the, where the word vainglory comes from. It describes a person who is desperately trying to prove what they know isn't true. We're empty. We're hungry. There's a glory vacuum in us, and so we're insecure, and we live with a need to prove ourselves. And the way you deal with this is to always be comparing yourselves to others. That's the strategy. And so Paul says there in verse, six, verse 26, it's just so profound. He says, let us not become conceited. And here's how this gets expressed. Either provoking one another or envying one another. Provoking one another or envying one another. And what Paul is setting up is he's setting up categories for how this this conceit begins to be expressed in our lives with one another, provoking one another. It literally means to call out. It means to come from a, a, a position of, of superiority. And I, this is so silly, but I just thought, I don't know, it was on TV. Uh, anybody remember the old movie Caddyshack? Right? Charlie, raising the hand. You remember, do you remember Rodney Dangerfield's character? And then there's the judge. What's the ju- judge? Judge Smales. You remember how those guys are constantly going back and forth on one another and challenging one another and provoking one another because they're both so they're they're so um, endangered by one another's presence. So there's just this constant I'm better than you. You know, I can I, I challenge you. And there's this constant provoking of one another and trying to prove to the other that, you know, that that one really is superior. And so he says this conceit first takes the form of superiority of always looking down your nose at other people of always coming from a position of superiority. But he says, don't become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And that describes the person who comes to the opposite from a position of inferiority, constantly looking up at others, constantly angry and mad because somebody else has, you know, got it better than they have from an inferiority complex. So conceit either manifests itself in superiority or inferiority. And you can begin to understand how this damages relationships. Tim Keller Uh, He writes about this passage. He says, Paul's statement here is very striking and profound. For he says that both superiority and inferiority are forms of conceit. But how could that be? Now listen to how he says this. He says one way to put it is that both the superior and the inferior person are self-absorbed. Whether you're a condescending person or a shy person, you're being self-centered. For in both cases, you're focusing heavily on how the other person makes you look and feel instead of how you make he or she look and feel. It says both the superior and the inferior person is trying to gain worth through competition, therefore at the expense of others. 
Both want to gain an identity by beating and surpassing others. Both, therefore, want to be proud or superior. Now listen to this. The only difference between the person of arrogance and the person with low self-esteem is that the inferior person is lost at the game. So though provoking and envying seem like exact opposites, they are both forms of conceit. Now can you begin to kind of connect the dots here? Our relationships go bad because we're desperately trying to feel better than other people. So here's what we do. Let me diagnose this for you. When we get into a relationship, we have to decide, am I better than you or am I worse than you? And that's why we have no friends. That's why it's hard, because everybody's either above us or below us on the scale. Hardly anybody is right where we are. And what this does is it causes you to constantly be coming into every relationship and every friendship from a posture of either superiority or inferiority, either looking down at those who are below or resenting and envying those who are above you. And because I'm conceited, okay? So let's just, because I'm conceited, because I'm praise empty, I need to get ahead of you and to be better than you and to have more than you and to be more love worthy than you. And here's how this works. If I think I'm better than you, then what am I going to do? I'm going to constantly be telling you that I'm better than you. I'm going to make sure you know that I am. I'm going to boast. If I think I'm if I think you're better than me and I'm on the low end of things then I will constantly be consoling myself by criticizing you and talking bad about you and shedding light on your weaknesses. But I'm making myself better and all I'm trying to fill the emptiness. And so if it's money, you know, if, if, if the standard is money, if, if the idol that we set that 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 makes someone praiseworthy, if it's money, then you'll look down on people who have less money than you or you'll envy and hate and criticize and be skeptical and call into question the motivations of people who have more than you. Or I should probably just apply it to me. If you're a pastor and you're the pastor of a 200 person, 250 person church, then you look at all the churches with 50 people and, and you say, oh, listen, we preach better than those guys do. We have a better youth group. I mean, it makes sense why people would come to our church instead of going to their church. And then you look at the church with a thousand people and you say they're sellouts. They don't preach the gospel. You know, they're not faithful to the word. It happens all the time. And what this does is this completely, completely destroys relationships. Because what it means is I'm thinking of. You know, if, if, if what if what we're called to is in relationships where I think of you before I think of me, you know, as long as I'm praise empty. As long as my praise emptiness is still in play, I can't do that. I have to be thinking of me. I have to be taking care of myself. And Paul has already said, he's already said, don't bite and devour one another or lest you be consumed by one another, but serve one another in love. But we're needy. We're empty. We're kinodoxoi. We're praise empty. There's a praise vacuum in us. And so what we do is the exact opposite. It's gross. Jonathan and I were just sitting. We were talking about this. This is gross. We use one another. We eat one another instead of serving one another. We consume one another. We feed on one another. I take you into myself to make myself feel glory. I glory in, in your downfalls and where you're weak because it makes me feel good. We do the exact opposite. We literally bite and devour. We eat one another. It's gross. So we have to finish this morning by saying, then how do we overcome this? How does the gospel come and heal us of this? And see, all of this is not divorced from what Paul's been saying about the gospel to this point. 
if all of our dysfunction in our relationships is rooted in our neediness and our conceit, then how do we get healed of it? And the, the remedy is just this. It's what we've been seeing all along. The remedy is that we get the affirmation, that we get the glory, the applause and the approval that we're looking for, but to realize that it doesn't come through getting ahead of others. We need God's approval. What we need, we need to hear God say, well done. And what Paul's been teaching us about the gospel is that's exactly what comes in the gospel. In the gospel, because of the work of Jesus, because he died the death we should have died, to put away sin, and because he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's will, because he lived the life we should have lived, now the verdict that hung over his life can hang over ours as well. We get God's approval. We have justification. We have righteousness. We have what our hearts are looking for, that empty place, that empty glory inside can be filled up, not just with the glory of my friend, but with the glory of the one who made the universe. His applause can start to resound in our hearts and we can walk around with it going off all the time. But how do we get his approval? How do we get justified? We need a verdict. How does the verdict come? And here's where the gospel is different in all the major religions of the world. Performance leads to a verdict. And so nearly everybody who calls himself a Christian, despite what they say deep down inside, they believe this. They believe that their performance leads to a verdict. If I follow the rules, then the verdict comes. But that means this. It means that every day you're in the courtroom, every day you're on trial, every day evidence is being presented for and against you. And again, we're back to a constant swing between between superiority and inferiority. But the gospel's different. Because in the gospel, the verdict comes, but it's not based upon our performance. It's based upon Jesus's performance. And what Paul's trying to beat into our heads in this letter is this, that in reality, Christianity works the exact opposite way. The verdict leads to performance. We get God's approval and affirmation. And so I can be confident. I can be confident I have the glory my heart longs for. I have God's praise. I have his approval and his love and his acceptance are not based upon my performance. The gospel teaches me two things, that I'm a sinner and I'm loved. I'm a sinner and I'm loved. And so when I'm tempted to come into a relationship from superiority, the gospel humbles me. When I'm coming from a high position, the gospel humbles me by reminding me I'm a sinner. But when I'm tempted to come into a relationship from a low place, from inferiority, the gospel gives me confidence by reminding me, no, I'm loved and I'm honored in the eyes of the only one in the universe that really counts. In other words, what we're saying is the gospel can give us an emotional wealth. It fills the emptiness inside because the applause of God is echoing in our hearts. And so now now we really can serve one another. Now we don't eat one another. We don't devour one another. We care for one another. We confront one another. We can be really for one another. We can live without self-concern. We can live with all out all the stuff that just ruins relationship. And so. The gospel produces the bold confidence we need to befriend one another. It heals us of our conceit. And it sets us free to really begin to do good. I mean, that's where Paul ultimately leads us. It leads us, we can, we can be a people who really do good. We're free to give people what they want. If it's a helping hand, then I'm free from self-concern and I can put aside my agenda to serve them in love by shouldering their burden. If what they need is correction, that I'm free from self-concern and I can speak the truth in love. So let me just conclude by saying this. Paul's calling us to do good. He warns us don't grow weary. But there's a call and we're out of time and we don't have time. I wish we had another week to get to this, but they're all telling me i got to get out of Galatians because we got to move forward and go to something else. 
But there's a call at the end of this book in light of everything we've studied about what it means for the gospel to begin to come home to our hearts, that what the gospel does is it frees us to be a people that do good, that sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. The gospel comes and it renovates our entire lives so that we can finally be a people because we've stared at the glory of Jesus, because our hearts have been melted by the love that is ours in him. It's the only thing that can set us free to be the kind of community Paul's calling us to. And so this morning we need to pray that he would come and do that. Uh, So would you pray with me? Uh, And then we're going to sing a song as a time of reflection and meditation as we cry out to God to come by his spirit and to powerfully work to make us this community. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ all of our emotional needs are met and forgive us that we really do because of the vain, because of the vain glory, because of the empty glory, because of the glory vacuum that is in our lives. We in our flesh are constantly seeking approval by putting ourselves above or, or bemoaning the fact that we find ourselves below others coming from superiority and inferiority because we're so full of conceit. Uh, but thank you that, in, that there's hope for people like us, that in the gospel of Jesus, the empty place can be filled up, but not with the approval of the world, not with the praise of man, but with the praise of God. With the applause and the acclaim of the only one that matters, the one who's made our hearts and knows us best. And so would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us a heart to receive the truth of the gospel? That we would come, that would you give us power to come to know the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus? And to know that love that surpasses knowledge and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Would you come and do that? And would it heal us of our conceit? And would it change us? Would it turn us into a community of people who truly love one another? And may the world see the love that we have for one another and may that they know that your love is true. And may you be glorified in us as this community, this household of faith, this quantumia of people. Would you come and do that in our midst for your own glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Um, Man, I wish we had time to get. Don't grow weary in doing good. We didn't even get to that. Um, But there's something about doing good that makes that makes that tempts us to growing weary. It's hard. It takes a long time, which is why I think that song's so appropriate. Don't grow weary in doing good. Wait on the Lord. And you find you find the grace and you find the strength to be able to go from this place and not grow weary and wait upon him and be faithful to sow to the spirit so that you would reap from the spirit eternal life. You find the strength and the grace to do that and knowing that you don't go alone, but that you go having had that praise empty place filled up with the praise and the glory of God that is yours in Jesus Christ. And that is the promise that you receive in the benediction. So receive the benediction this morning as you go to do good. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace and do good.